You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Czech intelligence warns of an impending cyber campaign against hospitals. The U.S. Defense Department alerts contractors that Electric Panda is back and after their data. Secure Pulse VPN's post-patching issues. Google blocks COVID-19 phishing emails. Apple and Google work on tracing physical contact. But Facebook is tracing contact with misinformation. Johannes Ulrich from the SANS Technology Institute explains exposed RDP servers while we work from home. And our guest is Tia Hopkins from eCentire. She talks STEM and cybersecurity education. Zoom offers some fixes, gets banned in India, and receives a mash note from Larry Ellison. And notes on HIPAA and CMMC. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 17th, 2020. The Czech cybersecurity agency NUKIB told its allies yesterday, according to Reuters, that it expects a major campaign against hospitals to begin soon, possibly as early as today. It's expected to be a destructive attack. Quote, The information we have available has led us to a reasonable fear of a real threat of serious cyber attacks on major targets in the Czech Republic, especially on healthcare systems, Nukib said. It's not clear who's behind the attack, and it seems that Czech authorities are unsure of the attribution themselves. But officials speaking on background told Reuters that it was a serious and advanced adversary. Battle space preparation in the form of a spear phishing campaign has been in progress for several weeks. Politico reports that the U.S. Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency this week warned contractors in a bulletin that it had detected renewed activity by the Chinese government's Electric Panda Group. The memorandum Politico obtained said that nearly 600 inbound and outbound connections from highly likely Electric Panda cyber threat actors targeting 38 cleared contractor facilities, including those specializing in healthcare technology, had been detected since the beginning of February. Electric Panda has been active since 2016 at least, and its interest in healthcare technology seems to represent a shift driven by the current pandemic. A similar shift in interest has been observed in Electric Panda's sister threat group, Pirate Panda, but in that case it's a shift in fish bait, not in targeting. CISA warns that the Pulse Secure virtual private network remains vulnerable to certain forms of exploitation even after its most recent patch has been applied. The vulnerability the patch addressed, CVE 2019-11510, is an arbitrary file reading issue. 
CISA includes in its advisory a tool to detect indicators of compromise and suggestions for mitigating risk of exploitation. Japan's CERT has issued similar warnings. The problem, ZDNet explains, is that attackers were able to exploit the vulnerability to extract Active Directory credentials, and they've since used these to get into organizations' internal networks even after patches have been applied. VentureBeat reports that Google is blocking some 18 million malicious coronavirus-themed emails daily. The company explained in its Google Cloud blog the measures it's put in place to help secure Gmail users during the current pandemic. The company's advanced protection program has been adjusted to adapt to the new style of threat, and G Suite's phishing and malware controls are enabled by default. Google's own explanations of how to combat phishing emphasize training and education as much as they do technical filtering. It's unreasonable to expect technical filtering, no matter how advanced, to fully cope with social engineering. That threat plays on people's beliefs and desires. The threat actors are after figurative hearts and literal minds, after all. Email is just the avenue of approach. Apple and Google are proceeding with their work on technology for contact tracing, and ESET has a quick overview of how Apple's mobility trends reports are working out. But their system, designed in the first instance for U.S. domestic use, may have difficulty attracting enough opt-ins to be effective. A report from the Sinclair Broadcasting Group quotes experts who doubt that Americans are likely to sign on in sufficient numbers to attain the 75% threshold generally thought to be the point at which such contact tracing tools become valuable. The perception that people generally have become skeptical about big tech's privacy record seems to contribute to the pessimistic conclusion. Facebook yesterday announced its intention to introduce a kind of misinformational contact tracing. It will be coupled with a kind of online rumor control Facebook is calling Get the Facts, and by the introduction of some straight dope about the virus in the news feeds of users who've interacted with dubious content. It will work like this. Quote, We're going to start showing messages in news feed to people who have liked, reacted, or commented on harmful misinformation about COVID-19 that we have since removed. These messages will connect people to COVID-19 myths debunked by the WHO, including ones we've removed from our platform for leading to imminent physical harm. We want to connect people who may have interacted with harmful misinformation about the virus with the truth from authoritative sources in case they see or hear these claims again off of Facebook. People will start seeing these messages in the coming weeks. Quote. The system depends upon Facebook's large troop of fact-checkers, and it's unavoidably a time-consuming process to execute at scale. A study by the content-moderation-friendly advocacy group Avaz generally had good things to say about Facebook's work against misinformation, but found it took about 22 days, on the average, for correction to catch up with suspect reporting. The new security measures and processes teleconferencing company Zoom has introduced seem to be drawing good reviews as far as they go. There's one new feature that Bleeping Computer describes that will enable users to report Zoom bombing, but as Security Week points out, Zoom hasn't convinced all users. The government of India has joined those who've banned Zoom from their remote meetings. A new problem has also surfaced for Zoom. CNET writes that a researcher found a vulnerability that could allow Zoom videos to persist in the cloud even after the users had deleted them. Zoom did receive a strong note of confidence from the IT sector, however. CRN reports that Oracle's Larry Ellison, more often known for his critical takes on other companies than for sending them fan letters, called Zoom an essential service for Oracle.
And finally, we have two quick notes on U.S. privacy and cybersecurity law and policy during the pandemic emergency. An op-ed in Law 360 cautions against assuming that the privacy protections in HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, somehow go away during a public health emergency. They don't. Prudent organizations will lawyer up before they get too frisky with healthcare data, no matter how public-spirited their mood and motives may be. And the Department of Defense has been telling contractors that the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, CMMC, program would not be delayed by the pandemic. That may be true insofar as the policy's effective date is concerned, but the CMMC audits themselves will probably, in fact, be delayed. FCW reports that Katie Arrington, CISO at the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, who had been prominent among those who said the program would become effective as scheduled, said yesterday that the first audits could be delayed for up to a month. FCW goes on to say that, quote, Arrington suggested that auditors would wear masks and employ social distancing practices to complete their duties, and that company representatives present during the audit would respect each other's personal space. So should we all. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Tia Hopkins. She's Vice President of Global Solutions Engineering at eCentire. Our conversation focuses on her insights with regard to the importance of STEM in education and preparing that next generation for success in the field. From an educational perspective, I think more applied versus theoretical uh, education would be helpful. And then on the other side of that, just getting uh, more folks interested in the field and feeling comfortable with their ability to, to succeed. I know a lot of STEM focuses on coding, 
Uh, but cybersecurity itself doesn't necessarily have to start there. You know, per, uh, personally, my background is in networking, spoken to individuals who have very strong background in like endpoint security and things like that. And, and all of those things really don't touch on cloning at all. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I, I've heard um, more and more people saying that they're looking to uh, folks who have specialties in, in other uh, disciplines, things like music, you know, because there's the ability to collaborate, the ability to solve problems, to think through things in real time. Uh, all of those skills can be applied to the needs we have in cybersecurity. That's an interesting one. Music specifically, I've not, I've not uh, heard that one, but I, I do agree with it in theory that it does require more than just, you know, the ability to think technically, right? In order to be able to, to thwart a hacker, you have to be able to think like a hacker and hackers are very creative. And sometimes that isn't technically driven. You know, if you think about social engineering, that has really not a lot of it doesn't have a lot of technical requirements. I'll, I'll phrase it that way. You know, you could just have a great personality and get people to want to open up to you and you can pretty much get anything you want. Right. So um, that that's one angle of it. But definitely being able to think outside the box or point to to collaboration um, and, and just being creative in general. Yeah. All critical to being successful in this field. What about opening up that that pipeline from from the get go? Those those young students coming up to um, to to let them know that there's a possibility for them in this uh, in this field. I'm thinking specifically of of young women coming up who uh, may not feel encouraged along the way. I agree with that 100 percent. I mean, in general, like, I think we could do a bit better at shining a light on cybersecurity as an opportunity. You know, STEM is pretty broad. You know, it, it's technical, it's non-technical. You know, you have engineers out there and that's technical, but it's not necessarily technology related in the way of, you know, something like cybersecurity or DevOps or, or something like that. Um, so I think unpacking STEM a bit would be helpful, uh, but definitely introducing these things to, to an audience at a younger age, uh, specifically girls and helping young ladies and, and young girls understand that, one, they can be successful in technology uh, and specific to cybersecurity. Again, back to my point, it's not all around, you know, coding because you see a lot of programs like, you know, Girls Who Code and coding camps and things like that. And that's great. But I find that that could lead to girls feeling like if they don't start there or if they don't have a mind for, for coding or that's not something that they're interested in, maybe STEM uh, is not for them. So just a, an overall, a, a better job of representation of what the possibilities are and having conversations with young girls like, hey, wh what do you like to do every day? How, does, how do you think your brain works? What, what do you think you would enjoy doing uh, as a career? And kind of working backwards from there and figuring out the things that may or may not align to the types of personalities of these young girls that we're talking to, rather than, you know, maybe making them feel like they have to fit into a box, whether that's on purpose or not. What about uh, from the other direction, the folks who are doing the hiring in organizations? Do you have any suggestions for them to make sure that uh, they're looking at a, a broad uh, a broad range of, of folks uh, for these jobs? So I personally, you know, I'm a hiring manager. So when I speak to my recruiters, I, I push on them to bring me, you know, diverse applicants. You know, where, wherever you've been typically fishing, go somewhere else. You know, I reach out to my personal networks. Um, professional networks. I'm involved in a lot of organizations that are driving more women toward technology in general uh, and organizations that are, you know, trying to drive more women toward cybersecurity. The challenge is, you know, as, as wide as we try to cast that net, 
Uh, there's just not a lot of applicants coming through. And I don't know if that's a lack of interest, a lack of perceived ability to be successful. And, and that all goes back to my point of representation. I think we need more, more women specifically that are successful in the field uh, to show themselves and, and, and encourage women and say, yeah, you can be successful here. And here's what my journey looked like. And it wasn't pretty, but, but here I am today and it's okay to fall. And, you know, all those things that make it real and relatable um, for women. Yeah, I mean, you, you touch on that notion of mentorship, which I think is so critical. How do you do that yourself? What, what sort of things have you done along the way to make sure you're being a, a mentor to folks who uh, might need that little extra boost? Sure. So I, I'm a, a member of a number of organizations as a mentor. So I'm a career mentor with Cybrary. I'm a mentor uh, with Built by Girls. I'm a member of a uh, minority-focused cybersecurity consortium, and they uh, have a specific focus on mentoring women as well. So I do some, I guess you could say, organized mentorships through programs. Uh, but just based on you know the things that I'm I'm doing, like posting on social media and and doing interviews like this, I have a lot of individuals that reach out to me with questions and and ask for you know my feedback on what they should be looking into, types of schools that they should be going to as well. So just outside doing you know more organized mentorship, I try to make myself as available uh, as possible because. Part of the the challenge with knowing what to do or where to go is just, you know, being confident that you're taking the right path. You know, it can be difficult to navigate such a broad field, even when you break uh, technology down into the cybersecurity space. There's lots of different paths that you can go. You know, it's not cheap to get education or certification. So people want to make sure they're doing the right thing. So I, I always try to make myself available to give my feedback based on my personal experience and research, of course, because everyone's story is going to be different. Our thanks to Tia Hopkins from eCentire for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today on some issues that you all are tracking here when it comes to uh, this newly expanded work-from-home situation and RDP servers. What are you all uh, tracking here? Yeah, so, you know, everybody has now to work from home, has to administer their systems from home. And a lot of companies apparently, you know, weren't quite ready for this. And of course, uh, at this point, it's also kind of difficult, for example, to quickly buy like, you know, a VPN server or anything like that. Now, um, at the end of March, uh, Shodan released a report where they noted that the number of RDP servers that are exposed to the internet increased. They had to revise this a little bit, but still uh, the final result was, yes, the number increased. No real surprise here because 
this is a little bit the cheap and easy way to expose your system for remote administration. Problem with RDP, of course, is it's also one of the top targets that the bad guys are scanning for. We are monitoring uh, with our DShield sensor network uh, sort of what the bad guys are scanning for. And RDP is always sort of in the top 10 of the ports being scanned. So I went back a little bit and uh, checked, uh, did this increase as well? And what we noted was that in March, uh, the bad guys were spending quite a bit more resources scanning for RDP. Like, hmm. it's noisy data because the RDP is always so busy, but uh, certainly something that uh, is notable. And of course, RDP stands for Remote Desktop Protocol. What are some of the, the recommendations you have then? If folks, uh, I mean, this is a necessity. Uh, people find themselves in this situation. What are some of the basics for making sure they're doing it right? Yeah, so the number one way how uh, these RDP services are being attacked is weak passwords. So uh, definitely, you know, make sure you set up a strong password. Secondly, there have been a number of uh, vulnerabilities in RDP over the years. And uh, so definitely, you know, make sure that the systems that you are exposing are up to date. If possible, um, if you have some kind of firewall and such in front of these RDP servers, make sure that you limit the IP addresses that they can be accessed from now. This, of course, can be a little bit tricky in the work-from-home situation where you may not necessarily have like a static IP address at home, but uh, maybe you can limit it to like a couple of subnets that your ISP tends to use. If you have a couple of administrators, maybe, you know, set up each administrator's home IP address and hope you don't all change the same day. Uh, so there, there are a couple of sort of workarounds. Um, I'm, I'm talking about here sort of little dirty tricks kind of because uh, apparently you, you can't really uh, do too much. Of course, the problem is at this point, you are already working from home. So the last thing you probably want to have happen is sort of lose access to these RDP servers while you're making these changes. Yeah. What part in all of this could a VPN play? Where does that fit into this? Yeah, like a VPN is certainly, you know, the best way uh, to solve this problem where uh, you set up VPN access uh, to your network, you authenticate to the VPN. Let's hope you're using strong authentication there as well. And then via the VPN, you're connecting uh, to these RDP uh, servers. Problem with VPNs, of course, is they take a little bit of time to set up. They may need you to buy some equipment depending on what you already have. Uh, one issue we have actually seen is that uh, companies sort of run out of bandwidth on their VPNs mm. and also uh, ports. Uh, like the problem is if everybody works all of a sudden through the VPN, uh, you now don't really have the IP addresses you need for the VPN. And then you're dealing like you know, with fairly large NAT issues. In particular, if you're using like cloud service, let's say Office 365 and such uh, through this VPN, the problem then is that uh, for each user, you need about 100 or so ports. So you very easily mm. actually run out of uh, TCP ports there. Again, you know, we're talking about dirty solutions here in the end, uh, but you may want to set up things where maybe the Office 365 traffic is not routed through the VPN. You hope that HTTPS and so does its job, uh, but uh, there are no great solutions if you have to do it you know, very quickly. That's uh, the thing. It's something you... Probably should have planned a little bit 
ahead of time. <laughs> right, right. There's that old saying about hindsight, right? Yeah, like late January, we actually published a little uh, blog post about how to get ready for the upcoming pandemic. It hasn't really gotten a lot of traction back in January, but hmm. that would have yeah, been time kind of, yeah. Right, right. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.